while we're settling in, I want to take a moment before uh, the second panel uh, to welcome to the podium Corey Jack. Corey is the editor of the Journal of Law, Economics, and Policy. And as I mentioned, they're celebrating their 20th anniversary. We're very grateful for the chance to do this symposium in conjunction with JLEP uh, and, and Mercatus. And I should have made the point explicit at the outset. Uh, today's discussions will result in a symposium issue of the Journal of Law, Economics, and Policy uh, next year, where uh, a number of our speakers will will put these points forward in papers. So well, the Gray Center will be sure to uh, to advertise that issue uh, when it comes out. Uh, but in the meantime, please join me in welcoming Editor Corey Jack. My name's Corey. I don't have much to say. I think uh, Director White summarized everything pretty well. But first, thank you all for coming. This has been an uh, event we've been planning for a good number of months now. It's finally coming to fruition. And it's nice seeing all the groups come together. Before law school, I worked in finance for a little. I actually processed and underwrote loans. Um, and I really enjoyed the industry so much that during law school, I really focused my classes and I guess research on financial regulation. So it was really cool when uh, reaching out to Director White, he proposed the future financial regulation topic as our 20th anniversary symposium edition. Um, and now it's great seeing all my professors uh, and colleagues uh, and of course our esteemed authors writing. So with that, thank you so much. Oh, you, you bet. Thanks. So congrats on uh, the 20th anniversary. Um, and uh, thanks especially to the editors for being so patient, uh, waiting to get their edits back from all the authors. Um, I'm always amused when somebody refers to me as Director White. That sounds like really bureaucratic. And then I, but then I feel bad for Paul Ray and Susan Dudley and everybody else who's ever been Administrator Ray. Um, okay, so our second panel is titled, uh, What Will Regulate the Regulators? Um, the, the point of this, the sort of the central theme is that as I said at the outset of the morning, uh, political or financial regulation has become in many ways more politically salient, more politically controversial. Um, and there have always been arguments about whether some or all of the financial regulators should be roped into OIRA's oversight process or some kind of other uh, regulatory oversight process. Of course, that's not the only way that one can regulate the regulators. Um, uh, there, and, and so we, we, we brought in a variety of scholars, Peter Wallison, uh, Kristen Hickman, Bridget Dooling, and Paul Ray. I'll introduce them all individually when it's their turn to speak. Um, to offer their perspectives on how we might improve federal, uh, financial regulation through some new frameworks or some new theories. And before we start, and we'll start with Paul, I'll introduce him in a moment, I just want to tell a brief story. Um, the, the namesake of our program, C. Boyd and Gray, uh, he was central in the, the formation of the original executive orders creating OIRA. And when they announced uh, that executive order and the framework in early 1981, there was a public event. And somebody asked, why was it that the Reagan administration didn't include the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Federal, Board of, uh, Federal uh, Reserve Board of Governors and the other financial regulators in this OIRA framework? And if I remember uh, the quote correctly, uh, Boyden answered the question and he said basically, well, we're covering things like the EPA uh, and Department of Interior, so all the really important controversial ones. Uh, the financial regulators, they don't do that much, and it's pretty sleepy and not controversial, so we don't need to cover that anymore. And, and I had the pleasure of working with Boyden for years, and so from time to time I said, you know, would you like a do-over on that? <laughs> Times change, or maybe they haven't changed, maybe they have. Uh, that's the subject of Paul Ray's paper. 
Paul, he directs the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. He's a senior advisor at the Potomac Global Advisors. But most importantly, for present purposes, he was the administrator of OIRA from 2020 to 2021. And Paul's uh, working on a paper thinking through what it might mean to extend OIRA oversight to the financial regulators. So, Paul, why don't you start? All right, great. Well, good to be here with you all. Uh, I can't think of a better venue uh, for our topic than uh, where we sit today. So, uh, Adam, thanks for that kind uh, introduction. So, um, my basic thesis uh, is that OIRA review of rulemakings of independent agencies, including, of course, but not limited to the financial regulators, uh, would achieve the same goals as OIRA review of rulemakings by other agencies. Uh, so OIRA review comes with benefits and costs. As you know, academics and politicians debate whether benefits preponderate over costs or vice versa. And as you might imagine, given the fact that I am a former administrator, I side for, um, <laughs> firmly with those who think that benefits preponderate. But that's not the topic of, of uh, the paper or my talk this morning. Rather, my goal is to show that the benefits and costs of OIRA review of independent agency rulemakings do not differ appreciably from the benefits and costs of OIRA review of rulemakings by other agencies. So, if you want OIRA to review rulemakings by EPA, DOL, and HHS, you should also want OIRA to review rulemakings by the SEC, CFTC, and FTC. That's my argument. OIRA review offers three main benefits. Interagency policy coordination, stronger cost-benefit analysis, and democratic accountability through presidential supervision. My argument is that the independent agencies need these benefits just as other agencies do. First, interagency coordination. John Donne famously remarked that no man is an island. And that's true of agencies, too. One major benefit of OIRA review is that it helps agencies coordinate. It helps with both negative and positive coordination. It helps agencies negatively coordinate by identifying and addressing conflicts with their sister agencies. And it helps with positive coordination by identifying ways agencies can work together and also creating channels for agencies to share information with each other. The New Dealers seem to have contemplated that the independent commissions would each specialize in a narrow domain with little connection to the world beyond, but now we can see that this notion is hopelessly unrealistic. Independent agency actions can and do interfere with initiatives of other agencies, both independent and non-independent. Just ask the Department of Defense, which quite publicly, to Congress and otherwise, expressed its concern a few years ago that the FCC's Legato Network's ruling would undermine its GPS capabilities, <coughs> cause quite a kerfuffle around town. Um, independent agencies also have plenty of opportunities for positive collaboration, including data sharing with other agencies. As just one example, consider the SEC's pending climate disclosure rule, which of course raises many of the same issues and calls for much of the same data is already reported to the EPA under the latter agency's greenhouse gas reporting program. In short, independent agencies need both negative and positive coordination, just like other agencies, and OIRA review would provide it. The second benefit of OIRA review is stronger cost-benefit analysis. There are two main purposes that CBA serves. We might term them direction and disclosure. By identifying the consequences of various possible regulatory actions, cost-benefit analysis can help an agency decide whether and how to regulate. And this is what I call direction. And quite apart from this potential for directing agency action, cost-benefit analysis can help the public evaluate agency action, equipping citizens to form reasoned judgments about the performance of the agencies, 
of the president's supervision of the agencies, and of Congress, which gives the agencies their authorities and tasks. An OIRA review serves both these purposes. It does so by giving agencies access to OIRA's extensive expertise in cost-benefit analysis, by promoting interagency uniformity in conducting and presenting analysis, and by providing an external check on agency work product. This check is helpful in keeping agencies honest and in helping them to avoid groupthink, which of course otherwise pretty easily infects rulemakings. A wider review of independent rulemakings would promote these benefits for the independent agencies just as it does for other agencies. Uh, independent agencies make extensive use of cost-benefit analysis. Indeed, Congress has required that of some of the agencies. But they sometimes struggle to carry out adequate analysis. Um, you might think of the SEC's famous triad of losses in the D.C. Circuit some years ago. There's every reason to think that OIRA would help the independent agencies to conduct sound analysis, just as it does other agencies. In my experience, that's the judgment of the independent agencies themselves, some of whom sought OIRA's aid while I was at OIRA in, in improving their in-house analytical capabilities. The third benefit OIRA review provides is enhanced democratic accountability through presidential supervision of rulemaking. Democratic accountability is important any time officials must make political decisions. And probably no New Deal assumption has fallen on such hard times as the belief that the independent commissions would engage mostly in apolitical, technocratic activity. The SEC, the FCC, the FTC, and other independent commissions all make many decisions every year implicating important political issues. It's vital to create democratic accountability for these decisions. An OIRA review of independent agency rulemakings would promote this goal. While OIRA is not the president, one of OIRA review's benefits is the creation of opportunities for the president's closest advisors to monitor agency rulemakings and provide feedback on them. Now, some would, of course, question whether this is a benefit at all for independent agencies whom Congress has sought to protect from presidential influence, most paradigmatically through enactment of for-cause removal protections. But even putting aside constitutional questions surrounding these protections, it's clear that Congress does not intend total separation between the independent agencies and the White House. After all, it's Congress that interjected OIRA into the independent agency regulatory process in the first place, in the Congressional Review Act and the Paperwork Reduction Act. More to the point, OIRA review does not give the president any new authority over independent agencies. It only enables him to exercise his existing authorities, whatever those happen to be, which is a question I'm going to bracket here, more effectively. The force of any recommendations or directions from OIRA during the course of regulatory review is purely derivative of the president's existing authority over that agency, whatever it may be. So whatever limits exist on the president's powers to dismiss agency heads or otherwise to direct agency action would flow through into the, into the OIRA process. OIRA review, in other words, would provide only the modicum of presidential supervision that the president is already legally entitled to exercise. So far, we've seen that the independent agencies need the benefits that OIRA review provides, just as other agencies do. But of course, OIRA review also comes with costs. And it may well be that OIRA review will be more costly for independent agencies than for others. That is due to the multi-member structure that most of the independent agencies share. Because commissioners, or rather because decisions of a commission require deliberation among the commissioners, 
the costs of decision may be higher than for other agencies. So to the extent OIRA review requires multiple decisions from agencies, the costs of OIRA review for independent agencies will be proportionately higher than for other agencies, which have less friction built into their internal decision-making process. This cost may well be worth the benefits of OIRA review, but in my last minute or 90 seconds, wherever, whatever we have, uh, I'd like to suggest briefly there are ways for anyone concerned about this cost to avoid it, at least for the most part. One way, not the only way, to do this is to create a staged version of OIRA review for independent agencies, in which individual commissioners without a commission vote could seek OIRA review of high-level proposals for rulemaking. OIRA would facilitate interagency review of the proposals, which would achieve most of the benefits of negative and positive coordination and presidential supervision. At this first stage, OIRA would also provide feedback on preliminary agency cost-benefit analysis and would help agency staff with a research plan to further build out their analysis in the resulting NPRM. This first round of review would basically give the commissioners low-cost access to the information they would need to tailor a proposed and final rule that, would light, that could likely move swiftly through a second stage of OIRA review, a stage which would in other respects resemble the review process used for rulemakings by other agencies today. The second round of OIRA review would involve fewer exchanges between OIRA and the agency, and thus the need for fewer costly agency decisions, because the agency will have crafted the rule with the benefit of the interagency views and feedback provided during the first round of review. That is, as I said, just one approach to adapting OIRA's process to the needs of the independent agencies. My point is not so much to commend this precise arrangement as to show that there are options for addressing the ways in which independent regulators differ from other agencies. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Bridget has also identified some important options in her good paper on spoke review. My bottom line is that there is every reason to believe that the benefits of OIRA review for independent agencies are about the same as those the review confers on other agencies, and the costs seem no greater. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Our next two speakers are <coughs> Professors Kristen Hickman and Bridget Dooling. Uh, professor Hickman is the McKnight Presidential Professor of Law and Distinguished uh, University Professor at the University of Minnesota's Law School. I think it's fair to say she's the nation's leading expert on the intersection of administrative law and tax law. Uh, in addition to her work as a scholar um, and her many, many publications, including the Administrative Law Treatise, she served for uh, a year, two years? A year. A year. Maybe it felt like two years. <laughs> she served for a year in the White House uh, from 2018 to 2019 uh, in OIRA, helping to implement uh, the new deal between uh, OIRA and, and Treasury for OIRA regulation of, or OIRA review of IRS rules. Uh, and so we're glad she's here to bring her practical and scholarly perspective on these issues. And she's joined by Professor Bridget Dooling. Bridget is uh, a newly appointed professor at uh, Ohio State. Uh, but before joining The Ohio State University, she was a scholar at the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, where her own research focused uh, primarily on OIRA and White House oversight of agency rulemaking. And as Paul mentioned, one of her, her recent articles uh, focused on what she called bespoke Review, a regulatory review? That sounds, uh, that sounds very niche, very craft. Um, their paper, their, the working draft of their paper is titled Competing Narratives in OIRA Review of Tax Regulations. I hope Kristen and Bridget don't have competing narratives themselves. No. <laughs> That'd get confusing, but we'll start with Kristen. 
But thanks, Adam. Um, and I want to thank Adam and also Corey for putting this together. Um, it's just a delight to be here. Um, so uh, this, this essay that we're presenting here is part of a larger empirical project that Bridget and I have been working on for a while, evaluating the impact of OIRA review on tax regulatory practices. Um, so we're going to tag team this. Uh, I'm going to start off providing some background and context and then, oh, and then turn it over to Bridget to really highlight some of the points in the paper itself. Um, so OIRA review of tax regulations is controversial. For most of OIRA's history, tax regulations typically were not reviewed under a memorandum of agreement somewhat ironically signed by Peter Wallison, um, <laughs> as well as Chris DeMuth back in the 1980s, and then acknowledged and recommitted to by Gene Hansen and Sally Katzen in the early 1990s. But after a government accountability office study recommended reconsideration of those agreements and under pressure from members of Congress, Treasury and OIRA signed a new agreement in April 2018 that brought tax regulations under OIRA's tent with some very tax-specific adjustments. Um, in, but then in June of this year, another agreement not only reversed the 2018 MOA, but also, uh, also reversed the original agreement from the 1980s, basically said, we're getting rid of all past agreements and starting with this one. Um, and under the new agreement, uh, tax regulations are once again exempt from OIRA review, um, although, as I'll talk about in a minute, more, much more comprehensively than they were before. This may not be the end of the story. Uh, Senator Lankford has introduced legislation that would amend the Administrative Procedure Act to once again require OIRA review for tax regulatory actions. Um, you know, we'll just, this is one of those things that I don't think we're done arguing about. So, uh, you know, I hope that uh, this essay and then also uh, the study to which it relates will go a long way in helping to um, provide some, some foundation for the debates going forward. Um, it would be really easy to say that the events of the last several years with respect to OIRA and review of tax regulatory actions, um, you know, to be really cynical about it and to label the back and forth as, you know, just a case of Washington power politics, um, you know, bureaucratic turf protection, et cetera. Um, no agency likes OIRA review, although I think Paul and Bridget and I would all agree that they should. Um, but nevertheless, um, Treasury and the IRS haven't had to put up with it, OIRA review historically, and so it's probably hardly surprising that they don't want to engage with it now. But it's really, the, the cynical take on this, I think, doesn't get us very far and is overly simplistic. Um, as I've been mulling over the various justifications offered uh, both by Administrator Ricky Rivez on behalf of OIRA, but also various former Biden administration Treasury officials and some academics over the last few years for why we shouldn't have OIRA review of tax regulatory actions, I've realized that the pro and anti groups in this context 
have really embraced competing narratives, not just about OIRA review, but also about tax regulation more generally. So our, to interrogate fully um, the landscape, I think we're gonna need the empirical part of our study. Um, so results there to come. But our goal with this essay is to try to put forward in good faith the arguments against OIRA review for tax regulatory actions, and then explain why we think that those arguments at best only tell part of the story. Um, you know, our view, one view here is that OIRA brings great benefits to the public and the regulatory process in the form of, as Paul suggested, interagency coordination, democratic accountability, analytical rigor, and transparency about agency decision-making. Um, the other view is that OIRA is meddlesome in various ways. Um, you know, that OIRA is dismissive of agencies' subject matter expertise, and that OIRA's reviews and analytical methods are not really worth the effort that they impose. Um, the pro-OIRA view sees tax regulatory actions as highly interconnected with the social welfare and regulatory goals of other executive branch agencies, which makes robust interagency coordination especially important in the tax context. But the anti-OIRA review acknowledges the tax system's role in achieving social welfare and regulatory goals other than traditional revenue raising that has animated uh, tax administration, but um, nevertheless has remained focused principally on that traditional revenue raising mission of the tax system and the needs of some payer, taxpayers, particularly business interests, for regulatory certainty to plan transactions and to meet tax filing deadlines. The important nature and what's going on with the tax system currently, I think, grounds both of these views. Um, but we need to flesh them out more fully before we can really make coherent decisions, I think, about how to proceed down the road with the future of OIRA review for tax regulatory actions. Um, but let's be clear about one thing. Um, one statement that has been made in conjunction with the newest agreement between Treasury and OIRA is the, the claim or the argument that this new agreement merely returns us to the pre-2018 status quo. Um, that is definitively not the case. Um, the old 1983 agreement contemplated various degrees of Treasury and OIRA engagement for different kinds of tax regulatory pronouncements, um, and in particular, anticipated the possibility of OIRA review for legislative regulations, you know, those most legally binding of regulations um, in the tax context. Uh, when they were significant or major. But um, the, furthermore, as Bridget and I have, have documented or will document the statistics in the paper, Treasury and OIRA are not complete strangers. Even though over time the norm, the, the standard was not to seek OIRA review for tax regulations, 
I think in part because the IRS has for many years claimed that most of its regulations are interpretive rules and not legislative rules in APA terms, and thus they would all be exempt from OIRA review under the 1983 MOA. Nevertheless, over the years, I think we counted some 55 tax regulatory actions that had been put through OIRA review. Um, and in particular, as judicial and other legal understandings have evolved in the last 15 years or so about tax regulatory actions more often being legislative and not interpretive, um, one of the things we had started to see in you know the last couple of years of the Obama administration was a few more regulations starting to go through OIRA review um, from Treasury. So to some extent, I look at the 2018 MOA and I say, well, okay, that was just solidifying what was already starting to evolve under the old understandings. Um, but uh, the 2023 MOA is really clear and unequivocal that no regulatory action under Title 26 of the U.S. Code, under the Internal Revenue Code, in other words, will be subject to OIRA review in any way, shape, or form, under any circumstances. It doesn't deal with the Congressional Review Act, mm -hmm. so presumably somehow they're going to work that out. But with respect to uh, regulatory impact analysis under Executive Order 12866, um, with respect to um, you know the interagency coordination, all of the other things that OIRA review portends, um, all tax regulatory actions are, for now, entirely exempt. Um, so, turning then to the various justifications or rationales for that have been stated in support of the new 2023 Memorandum of Agreement, um, I'm going to turn things over to Bridget. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. Um, so first, a word of thanks and, and just my joy. You can already see why I enjoy my co-author so much. She is absolutely the best on these topics. Um, also, a quick note, I was in my first year, I think, in law school at George Mason when JLEP was formed. <laughs> and so I'm pretty sure there must be a mathematical error because there's no way that was 20 years ago. <laughs> I simply reject the premise, okay? Um, but I'm really pleased to see JLEP going strong and it's of course a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, so I'm gonna walk you through the four, four of the complaints that come up when it comes to OIRA's review of tax regulations. And you don't need to be a tax person for what I'm about to say to be relevant. If you think of yourself as someone who's more interested in the other types of regulators we've been talking about today, the reason that we're bringing these ideas to you here and in this forum is because you will see that a lot of these arguments crop up over and over when it comes to thinking about the relationship between OIRA and um, the traditionally independent regulators that are the subject of this conference. So I'd like to walk you through like four, four sets of complaints. One is around delay, the idea that you know, OIRA review just slows things down. Second, the idea that OIRA review injects politics into a space where it doesn't belong. And then three, the idea that cost-benefit analysis and other forms of econo economic analysis are just not a good fit for this subject matter. And then four, that tax is just fundamentally different. Tax is just different 
Um, this is a distillation of what is referred to in the literature as tax exceptionalism. The idea that, you know, that tax is just in a category of its own and therefore, you know, we really have to start from the ground up when it comes to tax matters. Um, okay, so beginning with delay, the idea is that OIRA's review of tax regulatory actions just slows down and delays the release of necessary tax guidance. And that this is particularly concerning in the tax context um, because folks need timely guidance to do what we all need to do every year, which is you know file our tax returns and to do tax planning in advance. Um, of course, delay concerns are not unique to tax. In pretty much every regulatory field, there is a desire for prompt implementation of statutes, clear communication with regulated parties, and the public. The question, of course, is whether the time it takes to do OIR review is worth it, right? And framing this issue as one of delay sort of stacks the deck. It frames the idea as there's this perfectly good rule that the agency is ready to release. If only they could do it, but OIR is, you know, standing in the way, right? Um, so that framing <coughs> tends to not be attached to other types of internal review that agencies do, such as, you know, the review by internal agency lawyers, working with the folks who handle the money, uh, talking about policy decisions with agency political appointees and that kind of thing that tends not to be framed as, quote, delay in the way that OIRA review is typically framed in this space. Now, as a factual matter, in the tax regulatory context, the 28, excuse me, the 2018 MOA that Kristen referred to shortened OIRA's review time to 45 days from the typical 90 days, which is what the standard OIRA review process can take under Executive Order 12866. It also offered. Um, the offered Treasury a way to achieve expedited review um, as short as 10 business days. So the 2018 MOA you know, bent over backwards to give uh, Treasury an expedited pathway through the OIRA process. And if you look at the data on how long OIRA review took during this time, because OIRA makes those review times public, a uh, quick average over the time that the 2018 MOA was in effect, review took 33.4 days. Some longer, many shorter, that's the nature of an average, uh, showing that MOA timeframes generally were honored in practice. So the idea that a wire review itself, you know, set the agency back an extensive period of time is not really supported by that information. Um, and of course, it, as I mentioned, in many, many regulatory fields, timely guidance and regulation is important. Um, one interesting aspect of how this manifests in tax, though, is who is able to take advantage of such advanced planning tools. Um, not everyone plans for tax consequences in the same way. And a normative question raised here is the extent to which the needs of those who engage in more um, assertive tax planning techniques should be accommodated at the expense of other taxpayers and also at the expense of other good government values, such as interagency coordination, like what Paul discussed. Now, in the question of whether OIRA review is worth it, one aspect of OIRA review is the interagency review process. Um, some would argue that interagency coordination for tax regs happens without OIRA's involvement. There's nothing stopping the agencies from calling each other up and talking about their regulatory plans. 
Two questions, though. First, which agencies are being consulted? As we see tax regulations increasingly relate to other social programs and social objectives, are we confident that the full range of agencies are being consulted? Second, when disputes arise between Treasury and other agencies, are we confident that um, that those disputes are being handled in a way that is even-handed and affords the other interagency partner with an opportunity to really make their case and have that case heard. So those are two concerns about you know just leaving the the Treasury interagency process to run on its own without the involvement of OIRA. Okay, the second set of concerns relates to the injection of politics into tax. Um, the, the clearest way to think about this, or one of the ways that this manifests around tax, <clears throat> is the idea that we, we want to keep politics out of things like tax collection, tax enforcement, right? We don't want targeting of entities based on political considerations. Um, that is a different kind of concern about politics than the concern about involving political appointees when policy decisions are made that govern things like regulatory choices. Uh, but still, critics assert that a wire review of tax gives an entry point for lobbyists and other political actors to influence the content of tax regulations. What I can say to this briefly is that a lot of the reporting on a wire review of tax regs in the 2018 MOA period, because OIRA can disclose the, the rule as it came into OIRA and then as it left OIRA. So you can do basically a red line and see what changed, right? What changed there was increased uh, preamble disclosure and explanation uh, rather than substantive changes to the rules themselves. So that is not consistent with the narrative that OIRA Review politicizes the regulatory process. We'll also be taking a much deeper dive into that in the empirical project that, that Kristen mentioned. Um, but anyway, the notion that um, executive branch tax policy is somehow insulated from political influence is, is genuinely puzzling. I mean, tax policy has long been influenced by the political views of the president and others, and we're not sure that that's obviously bad, um, or at least I'm not. I won't speak for Kristen. So in administrative law, we have long uh, distinguished excuse me, between adjudicative, which in this context would be like an enforcement action, and legislative regulatory decision-making in the executive branch. So we've long sort of treated those different in administrative law and afforded them with different levels of insulation from executive or political influence. A flattening that distinction when it comes to this topic is just sort of another manifestation of tax exceptionalism in the wild. Um, okay, so the third set of concerns about OIRA review is the application of tools like cost-benefit analysis to tax. Um, it's been controversial, as Kristen mentioned, since the 2018 MOA was issued. And the idea is that you know tax regulations merely implement the decisions reflected in tax statutes, that um, IRS is not engaging in the kind of administrative discretion that other agencies do when they issue regulations, and therefore the regulations just don't merit the kind of analysis that we put other types of discretionary changes through in the regulatory system. It is possible that that was true at some point in the past. Um, many, but modern tax regulations involve exercises of policy-making discretion, uh, the expected consequences of which can, and some would argue should, be spelled out, including the costs and benefits, whether they are uh, quantifiable or merely uh, qualitative.
Um, there are also concerns about the fit of cost-benefit analysis in tax that, that touch on different aspects of this. We'll talk about this in the paper, but I won't get into it here. Although the most interesting of which is the idea that um, cost-benefit analysis ignores distributional effects, which is true. But this critique fails to land with force because cost-benefit analysis is not the only kind of regulatory analysis called for under Executive Order 12866. Distributional analysis is also expected, and in fact, the current administration has made a signature aspect of its regulatory policy invigorating agency use of distributional analysis to evaluate their regulatory choices. So an irony of the 2023 MOA is that it works at cross-purposes with efforts to improve distributional analysis. Tax regulations, after all, are perhaps the most redistributive regulations issued by any agency. So exempting tax regulations from Executive Order 12866 and OIR review effectively takes tax policy and IRS-administered regulatory and social welfare policy out of these invigorated interagency analytical discussions within which the federal government will forge new methodological approaches under this administration. Uh, Treasury might do this on their own, but why cut them off from this burgeoning interagency community? And then the fourth argument is that tax regulations are just different. This notion that, look, tax is just stands alone on its own. Um, and though through tax regula regulatory actions, um, IRS and Treasury officials make policy choices that narrow and expand benefit eligibility requirements, they incentivize or discourage private party behavior, they impose or alleviate tax regulatory burdens, in addition to increasing or decreasing tax liabilities. The choices have real-world consequences far beyond who pays more tax, who pays less tax. And therefore, we question how different tax regs really are compared to other forms of regulation. So in conclusion, I'll just say, you know, we mentioned these, you know, four objections to a wire review in the context of this conference because it is possible that similar arguments will be raised and have been raised as you think about a tool like OIR Review applied to other uh, traditionally independent, say, financial regulators. And we hope that this work sheds some, shed some light on the nature of the disagreement so that policymakers can anticipate these arguments and think about you know, how to turn the corners on those as they move forward. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Kristen. Our last speaker on this panel is Peter Wallace. And Peter is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, previously served on the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission uh, and, and has published books both before and since then focused on the intersection of, of uh, financial markets and regulatory policy. Uh, before all that, he was White House Counsel and General Counsel, General Counsel of the Department of Treasury. Um, and frankly, when I first reached out to him, I said maybe uh, you'd have some thoughts on the experience of the IRS uh, and White House uh, OIRA oversight since you were present for the creation. Uh, and Peter said, well, maybe, but I've got a better topic than that. And he truly does. His paper is titled, A Proposal for Removing Government Agencies from Supervising or Insuring Banks and SNLs. It's a wide-ranging focus on how uh, this area of regulation works and how it might be best uh, reformed from the ground up. So Peter, thanks for joining us. Well, Adam, thank you very much. Uh, 
always difficult to be the last speaker before lunch, but <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it interesting enough so that people will stay. Um, in any event, um, I think I'd like to introduce what I'm going to talk about with something that Monty Python always uh, noted before one of their shows, and it said, now for something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> and this will be completely different from what was on the first panel as well as this panel. I'm willing to concede that banks may need regulation. Um, that's probably because of lack of transparency, among other things. Um, but after that, the question for me is, how much regulation and how should it be carried out? What do we do? This is the general question I think I will be talking about. What do we do when we see that government is failing in a task it has assumed? Think of the post office and the gradual replacement of its function by private courier services, uh, FedEx, the internet, and probably many others to come. Uh, the post office is, a, is an elephant that is gradually going to be um, taken down because it is so inefficient. But it will, and so it will be replaced by something from the private sector. Now I'd like you to consider the regulation and supervision of banks in the United States. This is done, as most of you know, by Federal Reserve, uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the controller of the currency, three government agencies. And it has failed. Here's what Bill Isaac said about the period from 1978 to 1992. Now, Bill Isaac, I look around the room, you're all so young. Um, <laughs> Bill, Bill Isaac was the head of the FDIC um, sometime between about 1980 and 1992. Um, and, and then he wrote a speech about uh, one of the things he was doing, and he said this about that period. The period from 1978 to 1992 was exceptionally tumultuous for the U.S. economy and the financial system. Our largest banks were loaded with loans to lesser developed countries. The Federal Reserve, FDIC, and Treasury developed a contingency plan to nationalize the major U.S. banks if the lesser developed countries renounced their debts. Imagine that. Just think about that. Some 3,000 insured banks and thrifts, those SNLs, failed during this period. Our seventh largest bank, Continental Illinois in downtown Chicago, failed and was in effect nationalized <clears throat> by the FDIC. And many regional banks went under, including nine of the ten largest banks in Texas. Um, but this was not the worst time in the U.S. financial system. Just the worst time that Bill Isaac was in charge of the FDIC. The disaster that struck the financial system in 2008, when countless low-quality mortgages failed, and many of the largest banks and non-bank financial institutions, too, in this country, um, 
were, were invested in these mortgages, they all teetered on the brink. That was the worst, and that, actually that was something I had a chance to write about. But many reforms were introduced, of course. Immediately, the Fed demanded and received most of the new regulatory powers that Congress was only too willing to hand over after this crisis. And yet, surprise, surprise, in 2022, four of the largest regional banks in the country failed, led by Silicon Valley Bank, which was regulated by the Fed. It took well over a year for the Fed to diagnose the problems at the bank and get a memo describing the situation, that is, what to do about it, to the Fed's Board of Governors. Luckily, that happened before SVB actually failed. The Fed was lucky in this case because the FDIC did an even poorer job with Signature Bank, one of the institutions it supervised. That bank failed even before the FDIC was able to complete the necessary documents describing its financial condition. These failures caused panic among depositors, and for a period of time, the FDIC and the Treasury, as you all remember, it was just a few, couple of years ago, I guess, had to offer full coverage of deposits, not just coverage of the regular insured amount, amount which was about $250,000. So this, you would have to say, was a terrible failure of government regulation, but it was not the only one. We, I talked about what Bill Isaac was saying. There were fail big failures before 1978. And then after we had all of the reforms after 2008, we continued to have failures of regulation. The trouble is we have, I think, a government system um, for preventing failures, for regulating banks, and the government system doesn't work. And one of the reasons I think it doesn't work is that there is um, a difficulty in getting the regulators to act uh, with some strength and with some consistency when they see a problem. The Fed, which is by far the most powerful regulator and supervisor of the banking uh, system, it also has a glaring conflict of interest. The Fed sets interest rates in order to move the economy. For example, if the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the agency within the Fed that has this power to set interest rates, um, thinks the, if, the, if, the, if the FOMC thinks the economy needs a boost, it will lower interest rates. But if it believes the economy might be expanding too fast and threatening inflation, it will raise interest rates. However, the bank supervisors who work under the Fed have the job of making sure that banks under their care are not taking excessive risks. And that sometimes runs counter to the Fed's interest rate policy. For example, when interest rates are pushed to near zero, has happened several times in the recent past, banks take a lot of risks. They make loans to low-quality borrowers because they are trying to find and take 
any paying loans on board that they are able to absorb. In these cases, the supervisory staff should be making sure that banks are not making excessively risky loans. But this would put them at odds with the FOMC's policy, which by lowering interest rates is knowingly making the banks take more risks. This puts the supervisory staff at odds with the economic policy of the FOMC, even though the head of the supervisory staff is a member of the FOMC. Whether he or she speaks up in meetings and refers to the fact that this will cause banks, this particular move will cause banks to be riskier, um, we don't know. Um, but it is a conflict between the Fed's major policy as the uh, agency in charge of the monetary system in the United States and the world, really, um, and the supervisory capacity that it has. So this is a serious conflict of interest within the Fed itself and suggests strongly that the Fed should stop supervising banks. In the end, the Fed is failing as a supervisory system. But not only the Fed, the FDIC and the controller of the currency don't actually have significantly better records than the Fed. They have all presided over a banking and financial economy that is failing at regular intervals. To say the least, this is not a successful government uh, practice. In the past, if the government could not do its job properly, the job would be turned over to the private sector. So, to stop the recurring failure of the banks and the financial system, the government supervisory system should be, in my view, privatized. How would a private system of bank supervision and deposit insurance work? First, once the system is privatized, a large class of private specialists in bank supervision will develop. Just like the development of a vast accounting profession to audit the thousands of small and large businesses that are public companies and regularly report uh, through the SEC to the public. These specialists, I'll call them monitors, will examine and supervise banks for an annual fee paid by the bank. Over time, the fees will become risk-based as competing monitors bid against one another by lowering their fees for banks that exhibit good practices and raising them when the banks seem to be taking more risks. This will vastly improve the normal tasks of bank supervision. The monitors will have strong incentives to be sure the banks they oversee will be following good practices since a failure to do so will be very bad for business of the monitoring firm. Now, here's a question of incentives, which the government does not have. And I expect that we have a failing uh, supervisory system for banks because it is run by the government, and the people who are in the government have no incentives to work hard to make sure that they discover the problems that they should be discovering and deal with them. The deposit insurance side will be, would, in my 
proposal function differently. Uh, deposit insurance will be provided by the combined capital of syndicates of banks and other private sector firms that, that want to take banking risk for a fee. Uh, these syndicates will bid for deposit insurance risk in the same way as various risks are sold to bidders on the floor of Lloyd's of London. And I might add that the total amount of capital in the worldwide banking system, which would be available for this project, is $2.6 trillion right now, well beyond anything that anyone imagines would have to be paid out in the, in the event of a, even a catastrophic series of bank failures. But bank fa failures would be substantially reduced when there are incentives on the part of the actual supervisors to make sure that they discover whether there are problems going on in the banks and get those problems dealt with quickly. Uh, there will also be layoffs of major risks among the syndicates as they become apparent during the monitoring process and a stop-loss arrangement of some kind that will assure that no banks fail because of losses on the deposit insurance that they have signed up for supporting. Now, I am in the process of writing for this program a long paper um, that will go into much more detail on all of this, but my colleague here, Adam, limited me to 10 minutes, so yes. you've got it. Thanks, thanks, Peter. <laughs> well, so as Peter mentioned, uh, our lunch session is next, and so I'm gonna make sure we end on time, and I'll just ask maybe one question for each of the papers before we open it up quickly for questions, and I'll just start where we left off with Peter. Uh, Peter, you definitely don't, uh, you're no shrinking violet. Um, there's a big proposal, is there any- I didn't see any in the armed no. here, so. It, is there, is, there any, um, is there any way to do this on a small scale somewhere before sort of going big, sort of the full overhaul of this? I don't know, um, um, and, I, and I'd add to that, um, some would argue it's not a coincidence, let's say in the case of the Fed, mm -hmm. it has regulatory power. They say it's a natural outgrowth of its monetary powers. It's not so much a conflict of interest, but rather one followed from the other. I think um, Kate Judge's colleague at Columbia, Levin and wrote a paper about this, um, a Gray Center paper once, saying you can't have the monetary policy without the supervisory policy. They go together. Um, is there any way to at least test out your theory on a small scale in some subset of the market or one of the regulators uh, before just getting the, the federal government out of this business altogether? Well, if the government is willing to even test it out, there is uh, unlimited, unlimited ways that this could be done because you could simply take a, a series of banks, uh, small banks, larger banks, and then very large banks, and you could subject them to that, the kind of regulation I'm talking about uh, by the private sector, um, and then see how that is working. The, and the government supervisors can follow what the private sector supervisors are doing just to make sure that they're not letting illegal activities or dangerous activities occur. But, of course, they would not be anyway. In any event, yeah, you can do it on a small, 
scale if you want, just to see how it works for a while. Um, but I, I think if we leave things the way, I, I, re I really fail to see that there's any relationship between monetary policy and bank supervision. And one of the reasons I fail to see that is that most other countries don't have any such relationship. Canada, for example, has a monetary uh, policy set, set by a Fed-like institution, and they have a whole separate, different agency that uh, regulates their banks. So they're not related in any way and needn't be. Well, thanks, Peter. Kristen and Bridget, I have one more possible objection to White House oversight of Treasury or of IRS regulations. Mm -hmm. um, it's not so much about interjecting politics, and it's not so much about the subject matter. It's about the character of the decision-making process in the agency. Uh, you, you pour cold water on the suggestion that, IR, that IRS tax regulations simply interpret the statute, and. You see, that seems correct to me. You seem right on that. But I'd kind of like the IRS to go from the presumption that that's what it's doing, that we're just interpreting. We don't actually have a lot of discretion here. Um, even if that's not totally accurate, I would love for the IRS to sort of go to, go to work with that mindset. The whole premise of OIRA review is that agencies have a lot of discretion, and sometimes they don't even think broadly enough about how much discretion they have. They're too single-minded focused on one approach. And so my question is, if the White House and OIRA bring IRS tax regulations back into their oversight, isn't there a risk that over time the IRS is going to, its character will change, it'll think more in terms of, from the start, how much discretion do we have? What are our options? I kind of like the IRS thinking in terms of what did Congress tell us to do, rather than what might the White House ask us to do. <laughs> That's kind of like trying to put the horse back into the barn after the barn door has been opened already. Um, you know, I mean... Honestly, it, we're already past that. Um, if you look at tax regulatory activity over the last 20 years, um, you see at Treasury IRS the same kind of envelope pushing when it comes to statutory interpretation. You see within the Internal Revenue Code itself hundreds of delegations of rulemaking power, um, both specific and targeted in some instances, but also there, there's a very broad general authority to adopt rules and regulations as needed for the effectuation of Title 26. They've already, they're already exercising that kind of discretion. They don't always call it that. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, I've been trying to talk with some past Treasury officials, and by past, I mean relatively recent past, about this idea that they lack discretion, mm -hmm. um, at the kind of discretion that other agencies have. And when I point out particular regulations to them, well, what about this one? What about that one? What about this other one? Sometimes they say, well, we were just clarifying ambiguity. <laughs> But then I say, well, in clarifying that ambiguity, you had choices, right? And that, well, yeah, we had choices. Well, how did you pick? You know, the pro-taxpayer choice versus the, you know, the pro-fisc choice, or how did you pick five percent as a threshold instead of ten percent as a threshold for this, that, or the other? You know, and 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 well, you know, we we we, you know, they talk to their own economists. 
They, you know, contemplated the, the, the consequences, you know, all the sorts of things <laughs> that agencies do. And so, you know, we're already there. The only difference is that, at least in the last 20 years, until relatively recently, I think largely because of OIRA review, um, but also some court case action, um, they, were just trans they were just less transparent about the discretion that they're exercising. Um, you know, and they, they disguise it under euphemisms, like we're just clarifying ambiguity. We're not exercising discretion, which, you know, I mean. Okay, I, Kristen, so your answer seems to be, ah, it's already bad. And my response is, well, it could get worse. Um, um, Bridget, do you have, can you maybe make me feel better about this? Uh, I guess things could always get worse. I tend to be an optimist, but um, I th so one of the things that we're doing in our empirical study is actually look, we're reading, I, and I, I should say I am not a tax person, so I, I am joining Kristen in reading, you know, hundreds of preambles of tax regulations. Which, we'll make a tax person When she talked me into this, it was a smaller scope study. Uh, yeah. I'll just say that. Um, but we are looking for th little turns of phrases that signal discretion. So things like, we have decided, or upon consideration. There are just these little um, written notes in the preambles. And so one of the things we'll be looking for is, is the prevalence of that over time, although that's, that, that is a challenging thing to measure, obviously. But that's at least our attempt to account for this phenomenon of the idea that the discretion was always there. We just weren't sort of acknowledging it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I would tend to err on the side of owning the discretion where it exists, putting it out to the public for comment and being clear when building a record, you know, in support of judicial review down the line, potentially that the discretion was there. Here are our reasons why we made the choice that we made rather than acting like this was just automatic and compelled by the statute. Okay. Um, and last question for Paul. Uh, Paul, your paper, your draft walks through all the various objections uh, to White House oversight of the financial regulators. Uh, and the familiar, the most familiar objections are the constitutional ones, right? The president doesn't have authority over multi-member commissions. Um, the subject matter objection that this is uh, financial regulation is 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 unique in its need to be protected from politics. Um, there's a couple more, and you, there's a practical objection. You touch on one practical objection that it just wouldn't work procedurally with multi-member commissions, and I think your paper um, uh, really does a good job of that. But there's another practical consideration. There's a real argument out there um, uh, among scholars that actually financial regulation is uniquely ill-suited to cost-benefit analysis. Uh, John Coates wrote a long paper about this about 10 years ago. Uh, Jeff Gordon at Columbia has been a skeptic of this. Um, on the other hand, your predecessor, Cass Sunstein, does know it can be done. Um, and Eric Posner uh, and Glenn Weil have said it can be done. But there's a real argument out there that, that in its nature, financial regulation is uniquely difficult to capture ex ante with cost-benefit analysis. So that's, that's one concern that I have left. And the other that I don't think you touch on is in unintended consequences. Uh, the financial regulators that you're talking about, they have a, a unique toolkit. Um, they are able to do more than almost any other regulatory agency outside of rules through, uh, through enforcement, through supervision, through adjudications, and so on. And so is the financial regulation a place where there is a real, uh, a real risk that layering on procedures on top of rulemaking will actually make the rules less common to begin with? Right. No, good, great questions. And I um, take advantage of, going, of receiving the last question to build on Bridget and Kristen's response. Yeah. Um, the... The fact that, uh, well, one benefit of OIRA review that we have uh, not sung praises of yet this morning, so I'll sing praises for it now, uh, is that it increases agency self-awareness 
right? So if um, if Treasury is actually unaware of the discretion that it has, well, that's that's another really good reason to have a wire review, right? Um, but yeah, so no, great great question. So as taken the taken the first point first, uh, you know, uh, I want to. Move away from a from a kind of binary answer to that question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may well be that certain goals that financial regulations seek to achieve are difficult to con- to subject to cost benefit analysis. That may be so. It may even further be so uh, that that other benefits could be subjected to uh, careful qualitative analysis, but not quantitative analysis. Yeah. That would not be surprising. There are plenty of of goals that many agencies achieve that are. Uh, more easily quantified than than others, right? Um, but I I am quite skeptical that the OIR process would uh, would not add considerable benefits, um, uh, both because some of the goals that the financial regulations uh, aim at seem pretty clearly to be quantifiable um, from the fact that that Congress at least has expected a number, you know, the FTC and the SEC. To conduct some sort of cost-benefit analysis, it hasn't. Um, in the case of the SEC, for instance, uh, directed quanti- you know the degree of quantification that's that's requisite. Um, but it certainly has taken the view in both the Securities and the Exchange Act that that some sort of uh, of of weighing certain benefits against certain costs is is required. Right, and and in, in my experience, um, having reviewed the SEC's. Uh, cost-benefit analyses in some detail, um, they are able to state uh, some of the benefits and some of the costs of their regulations. Maybe, maybe less than than some other uh, other you know some other regulations from some other agencies. Um, but but nevertheless, they seem they seem quite able to. Um, so I, I suppose I you know see a lot of see a lot of benefit there. Not to mention, of course, the other two the other categories of benefits. It's like the the old Catholic joke: you believe in baptism, believe in it. I've seen it done. <laughs> um, but but what about the, the the fact that it might the OIRA oversight might um, just deter these agencies from going through the the rulemaking process to begin with? Yeah, no, that that's a it's a good uh, it's a good factor to consider. Um, I think the agencies are under. Um, you're certainly right that they have uh, more legal authorities to to proceed by means of of adjudication than some other agencies have. They, they uh, and they also labor. Less under um, under congressional directives to proceed with rulemaking. Right? A number of the of the core uh, cabinet agencies uh, labor under you know uh, a number of mandates to to regulate on particular topics. That's usually not true for the for the uh, independent financial regulators. Um, but there is uh, quite a bit of demand from their from the regulated public, and then uh, seems to be also from from the White House to engage in rulemaking. Right? It seems like there are there are Many good reasons that the independent regulators find it highly desirable to proceed by way of rulemaking. Perhaps, um, you know, perhaps at the margin, uh, the uh, you know increasing the desirability of proceeding by adjudication in, in the way you mentioned um, would would affect at the margin the number of uh, and, and and consequence of rulemakings they engage in. But I I think probably the the powerful incentives that they otherwise experience would would uh, you know sort of. Uh, a deal with the force of that objection. Terrific. Thanks, Paul. We've got about five minutes left in the session. That's enough time for a couple of questions. Um, we'll start over here with John. 
Thanks, I want to ask for, for Paul Bridget and, and Kristen uh, about OIRA, because you guys were, were great on uh, where we should move the, the chessboard for OIRA, but for those of us who are outsiders, you didn't really talk about what OIRA does and is it any good, um, because okay. you're talking about a, an expansion of, of an OIRA process, so convince us that it's doing any good and then maybe it deserves a promotion. For Paul, I think you took too lightly the political uh, problem. Um, let's be specific. Uh, the you know SEC is an independent commission. It's independent for a reason. Uh, right now, it's a whole hog into uh, regulating climate change policies that Congress does not want to pass. Uh, it's independent. Uh, Hester Peirce is, is going down screaming on this. Wouldn't an OIRA review just be one more way of steamrolling uh, those kinds of decisions? And and this is important. You know, it may not. It may be a Republican administration next time, and God knows what it will want to do via the SEC. And that's a deeper problem, because we're very partisan now, and one of the reasons we're so partisan is because the presidency is winner-take-all, grab the executive agency, shove it down your throats, and that's in part when independence was supposed to stop. So you just said, oh, don't worry, it won't be political, but that seems to me like a very real worry. And for Bridget and Kristen, um, uh, tax policy, as an economist, the number one thing I would want a review to do is to estimate behavioral responses. We raise the tax rate on X. How do people change their behaviors and we make less money and the economy changes? Does the OIRA process have any competence at, at uh, doing that kind of thing? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I suppose the, the core of my argument uh, is actually that the SEC is already engaged in what it's engaging in uh, without a wire review, right? That is to say, um, the president already has many, many ways to influence what the independent agencies do. A wire review would would increase uh, presidential input into the regulatory process, um, but I don't think it would materially enhance the president's ability to. to um, encourage independent agencies to start new regulatory initiatives, which is, I think, what we're really talking about here, right? Um, surely it would uh, enhance the ability of the, of the president's closest advisors, as I said, to provide feedback on, on the content of regulations that, that are already underway at the independent agencies. Um, and and for, the, you know, for reasons that I, that I stated, I'm not troubled by that. Um, but I, I don't, what I think you would not find I mean, OIRA is uh, is almost never the instigator or the, uh, the 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 cause of the initiation of a of a a new regular new rulemaking at a at an agency, right? Um, that might uh, a new rulemaking might start at the agency. Uh, it might be the the idea of the cabinet secretary or the or the commissioners, or it might start at the White House. Um, it almost never starts at OIRA. Um, once in a while, perhaps. Uh, so I don't, um, you know, if, if we're worried that, um, yeah, and I, I, think, I think the initiation of new rulemakings poses the gravest risk of what you're describing. We're up on time, so Bridget and Kristen, whichever one of you answers is going to get the, uh, the final <laughs> word for this panel. I'm okay. going to let you First talk about that. You go, you, you go, because I want you to talk <laughs> about what OIRA's competencies are yeah. with respect to uh, 
the kind of analysis we're talking about. Yeah, I, so I really appreciate the question, and I think, you know, in the interest of time, we sort of skipped over the is Oira good question, but I will just say there is a tremendous literature sort of duking it out on those questions about how Oira, you know, influences things like transparency, accountability, APA compliance, the agency's odds on judicial review, presidential oversight, and on and on and on. And we can, those normative debates rage on in the literature and in the policy arena, so I will just leave it there to say that there is a ton of reading there, and if anyone is OIRA curious, I can certainly send you a reading <laughs> reading list for how to you know dig in and get get your head around that. In terms of the you know OIRA's competence to assess the you know the behavioral consequences of something like the change of of uh, tax system, I would just say that one of the strengths of OIRA review is that it leverages agency expertise. So OIRA doesn't draft these analyses itself; it reviews the agent the agency's analysis and the perhaps the strongest tool in the toolkit is the simplest, actually, because OIRA review requires agencies to express the problem that they're trying to solve with the regulation that they're issuing, which gives you a good start when trying to figure out what both the consequences are, intended and otherwise, of the regulatory change. So if you embark on a tax regulatory change in order to have a particular effect, and in the course of going through this analysis, you realize that you might have that one, but a whole bunch of other ones too, that provides information to decision makers as well as the public as well as to judges on judicial review about you know the the advisability of the policy that the agency chose so I would say absolutely um, OIRA has the competence to work through that not because they are deeply knowledgeable about how the financial system works or how tax works but because they are expert in applying that question of you know, what's the problem you're trying to solve? What alternatives did you choose? And then how did you go about choosing one of those alternatives to move forward with an eye towards consequences? And I will just add two sentences. Really quick. Very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> which is that um, Treasury IRS, you know, while, while very hardworking, very competent, very smart people um, in terms of tax administration, historically has not done a great job about being transparent um, in terms of the choices that they have been making. The courts are pushing them into doing that. OIRA's process actually helps, I think, to further that goal. Now, your mileage may vary about how much transparency is a good thing or is you know something we ought to pursue, but um, as a transparency gal myself, um, you know, I have to say that to me, I think that's one of the benefits of the OIRA process is that it really helps Treasury get up to speed with respect to something it should have been doing all along, hasn't necessarily been doing, and is getting hammered in the courts for not doing as well as it should. Kristen, that was two sentences, but there were a lot of semicolons. <laughs> Please join me in thanking our speakers. Okay. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.